Hello and welcome to another episode of For What It's Worth. I'm Evan Lucas, InvestMart's Chief Market Strategist, and joining me in the hot seat this week is David Koch, Sunrise co-host, Chairman of Port Adelaide Football Club and Finance Aficionado. David, welcome to the program. Obviously, you're a fairly long-standing personality in in the media, but obviously being in this kind of podcast and what we do here at For What It's Worth, I I really want to get into really what you, you sort of you know, you made your whole name on uh, around the business world, business finance, etc. So we might as well just dive straight into it because it's the question that I always ask someone like you is the retail and finance industry has obviously had quite a lot of talk over the last 18 months with the Banking Royal Commission, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But it also comes down to the fact that you learn a lot in this industry. And, and the big first question I always ask someone like yourself, what has been your biggest pet peeve about the personal finance and retail finance industry, you know, basically over your career? Uh, I think the biggest peeve has been lack of transparency mm-hmm. and a lack of connection from a personal point of view with ordinary Australians who want to know how to manage their money better. Um, there's always been this view, even way back to when I'm, I first started Personal Investment Magazine back in the in the late 80s, um, was this view of the industry that you had to make all of your clients an expert in finance or made them, made them feel as though they've got to be an expert. And I always use the analogy that well, I like driving nice cars, mm-hmm. um, but what goes on under the bonnet has no interest to me whatsoever and I rely on taking the car to the mechanic if uh, it's not, not performing properly. And I let them become the expert at it. And I think there's, it's been a turn-off in the past, and it is today, that when an average Australian goes and tries to get advice, one of the reasons they don't is because they don't want to be made to feel an idiot because they don't know every technicality or nuance of financial markets or particular products. And I've sort of spent my life, if you like, trying to be the interpreter between the industry and average Australians who just want good advice for their money, um, but have this fear towards money, um, a fear of making a mistake, a fear of losing what they've got, uh, a fear of being in a relationship with an advisor who um, won't do the right thing by them. And they're pretty powerful human emotions. They are indeed. And, and that is certainly something that, in my short career anyway, I, I completely have seen, understand it. The hand-holding is, is certainly something that I think this industry has missed sometimes. Uh, mm. And it is not only that, it's it's also understanding that this is money is a very emotional thing, uh, and and therefore oh. it it does therefore yeah. mean that you know losing is a big big part. And whether you've got five five thousand dollars all the way up to five million dollars to invest or whatever it is in between, it's around that yeah. relationship. And and that's certainly what we and what I've always come across. Because from there, yeah. the next step is is how you know looking back to what you saw when you first started in, in particularly in in. The you know the journalism finance back in the eighties and the nineties to now, do you find that there is also still quite a disconnect between how it's being reported and what is seen in the media, particularly around finance, and what is actually happening? 
Um, I, there will always be a disconnect. Um, certainly in the finance media, when I first started, no one gave a toss about average Australians. They just wanted to uh, to write the chief executives. Um, but then Paul Keating came along and sort of a, a patron saint of of uh, financial advice and, and the retail financial services industry and uh, deregulated the whole thing. And it gave an opportunity for um, entrepreneurs to disrupt financial services. And they did that through through property trusts and managed funds and, and their insurance sort of brokers, them calling themselves financial advisors. And it's all grown from there. And Australians have a thirst for knowledge, but a thirst for knowledge that they can understand and relate to and, and build a trust in. And I don't think that's that's changed today, those fundamentals. I'm a great believer that you sell anything on basic human emotions, whether that be, be vanity or whether it be lust or whether it be greed or whether it be fear. And I think in... A lot of people make the mistake of thinking that that, that um, individual investors are driven by greed. Um, they're not. They're just driven by fear. It's the basic human emotion people have with money because money is an intangible object. People find it hard to relate to naturally because it is an intangible object and even more intangible now um, with electronic banking, investing and, and digital platforms. And so it all boils down to that human relationship of trust um, with the, the people behind a product, with the advisor that you go to. And it's that tactile human relationship. And like banking is a commodity now because of online banking. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's yeah. transaction-based. But investment advice always has been, always will be at the foundation of it is that trust in the human being that you're dealing with. Probably that brings the question there for is, do you, do you wish it was more accessible? Like, is it a cost thing? Is it, should there actually be some form um, of service that comes almost standard from, a, you know, even a government in, in input? Um, it is a cost thing. Um, and, and I can understand that, um, that, that for a lot of advisors, you, uh, there's really a minimum threshold to make it worth your while to, to talk to people because you've, you've got to pay the bills, you've got to pay staff, you've got to open the door. Um, but I think uh, digital is starting to, and digital access to information in bite-sized chunks that can be priced according to the, um, to the desires or the, or the need of the client um, is, is starting to, um, to really gain a foothold. And I see that is where the big growth has been. The, the robo-advice, not, not just through the ETS, but some of the models that can be online for, for quite simple investing um, and basic entry level, um, but to start building a relationship for, for when a client has, has more assets that they need advice on and it makes it more worthwhile for, um, for greater personal inter- interaction. So I think, uh, technology now allows you to grade the level of advice and and the touch points of advice um, from the very start right the way up to the what sophisticated investors need. Now, I think that's a good thing and will continue to develop even more. 
other thing that obviously you've done over your career is you've had touch points, not just here in Australia, but but overseas. And that also is the other part of probably just an extension of of your answer you just had there is, is there anything that you wish that in the world of finance that you're seeing in somewhere like the US or in Europe or even in Asia that you really wish was different for us here in Australia? Because we are still probably, we're doing quite well and we certainly lead the world in, oh, yeah. in a lot of things in finance, but there are certainly things overseas that I'm sure you see that you wish would, would get here sooner. Yeah, I, I, th- I think it is that development of robo-advice, um, but I think that's coming and and coming quickly. Um, some of the the models have just been picked up from overseas and plonked here in Australia, not understanding that um, success overseas doesn't guarantee the success here because I think Morgan Stanley did, did a big research report about two years ago saying that that while all the, these overseas models can can establish themselves here in Australia um, to the average consumer, it's more than just a name or a process. It's got to be a brand or a person that they relate to, and I think that's been missing in terms of a lot of the expansion in, in that digital area here over the last couple of years. Um, there's uh, And there's, there's a great opportunity in that area for disruption, uh, pocketbook, I suppose, was a classic example when it when it was the the first platform to simply connect people's um, investment and bank accounts across all different brands in into one app, and and then slice and dice the information any way the the consumer wanted. Um, they were, of course, acquired by Zip Money year before last, mm-hmm. but, but now a couple of entrepreneurs that. That, that made a big impact in a particular niche in under for under 35 consumers to to set them on the way and they've continued to develop that in zip money so you know we do have the entrepreneurs here that are doing it at the moment but it just needs to to to, to quicken the pace yeah and I, I would agree with that actually you've sort of brought up something there quite interesting talking about zip money and that kind of space and so I know it's a little bit away from slightly what I want to talk to you about I do actually want your opinion on it though is the rise of of our you know finance tech firms over the last 18 24 months have clearly come from from payday lenders things like afterpay things yeah. like zip um, yeah. and where we are leading the, the question I have for you being you know in your media world and, and the kinds of people that you do come across in your your day-to-day daily life do you see going forward that these guys need to possibly look at how they're, they're regulating themselves? Do you see, you know, an afterpay oh, yeah. having a, a bit more of a headache coming forward as, as that starts to really ramp up? Um, not necessarily a headache. I, I think they've got to be cognizant that that technology catches, um, sorry, regulation catches up with technology. Mm. Eventually, there's always a lag, always has been. Um, <laughs> um, Regulation is is going to be really tested by by Facebook's um, oh, cryptocurrency um, and how they deal with that. There are a lot of issues there that are quite scare me. Um, you and me both. Like yeah, like like Facebook, hmm. if they want to survive, uh, have got to get ahead of the curve on this and not wait for regulators to catch up because regulators, well, as they always do, will often. In the first instance, when they do catch up, um, solve solve a problem with the sledgehammer. Um, so I think uh, 
um, at the other end of the scale, uh, much smaller, but the afterpays and the zips um, have got to work with regulators and almost educate them into their business models and offer to help the regulators uh, put the regulation in rather than then keep them at a distance and say, oh, we promise to self-regulate because that's always proved a disaster in the past. Uh, but to say with regulators, come on, let's work together, open door policy, let's try and do something that's practical and fair that increases competition, reduces costs, but we have an understanding that we have to be regulated to, and we want that and we welcome that uh, to bring sustainability to the business. And and I think that's uh, I I think that's a real opportunity going forward if they approach it in the right way. Mm, absolutely. Getting back to sort of looking at not just what you've done in the in the, in the journalistic world, your your business stance has, has been incredibly you know successful over its years. So it brings the two questions that I always like to ask, also someone like yourself, which is, what's your biggest financial regret, but also your biggest financial achievement? Um. My biggest financial <laughs> regret is always investing in the Sydney Kings uh, basketball oh, team. Yeah. Uh, um, investing in sports organisations are a lot of fun, but a terrible investment, <laughs> as always. Um, but I've, I've invested in um, a, a handful of fintechs. Uh, Pocketbook was one. Um, I helped um, Alvin and Bosco sort of start that business. Um, advisor ratings is another one I'm invested in. I'm invested in InsureTech. Then I've invested in two others where I've lost everything on them, mm-hmm. all small amounts. But the reason I did it was that I wanted to learn this disruption space. I wanted to get involved in it because it is the future of us all. And the only way to do it is to travel in those communities and to have skin in the game if you really if you really want to know it, and it's one of the reasons I I quite Startup Daily, which is the the daily newsletter for the, the startup tech venture capital industry, because it keeps me in touch with these founders. They think differently. They're challenging business models. It's really exciting and a great opportunity, and it's changed the way I think about business. Um, and traditional media keeps whinging and complaining about um, redundancies that. Big W or Holden closing their plant, they don't focus on, you know, the canvas of the world, what Mel and Cliff have, have done with that online graphic design business that is now valued at $2.1 billion, is based at Surrey, in Surrey Hills in Sydney, has a staff of 600 and will be 1,200 in 12 months' time. They don't focus on sweat in Adelaide. Toby Pierce and Kayla Ritzinis is... Um, health platform, yep. which has has been downloaded 100 million times globally. You know, it's uh, the disruption space in finance, but also in other digital platforms in this country is extraordinary, the growth. Um, it's got to be celebrated and encouraged because that's where the new economy is is coming from and going to. Yeah, and it's a, it's a beautiful example of exactly what you're talking about is, is the digital disruption should not be seen as that word sometimes can get diluted, disruption. Um, it can be seen yep. with a negative connotation. It, it is, as you said, it actually creates new economies. It's clearly creating new jobs uh, and yep. a, a new driver going forward. 
From yep. there, it would be remiss of me, David, not to talk to you about your your time as president at Port Adelaide. Uh, yep. Considering, the, yeah, considering that the, the from a business sense, what has happened with you in charge since basically since you took over, what was it, two thousand and ten? Um, uh, two thousand and twelve. Two thousand and twelve. It was um, when the AFL rang me to get involved, and yes. I got involved grand final day, two thousand and twelve. Um, it, that year, the club lost $7 million. It didn't have a sustainable financial or business model. They asked me to, um, uh, if I'd um, sort of take it on. My dad used to play for Port Adelaide, and I've always been a, a Port Adelaide supporter and passionate about the club. It's 150 years old next year. It's the only non-Victorian club to have risen from community football to the elite national league every other non-victorian club in the afl was made up for the national competition or is a melbourne club that's been relocated so it's got an incredibly proud history but challenger brand in a small marketplace and we've tried to build a sustainable business and financial model that ensures that the football department is fully funded year in year out 100 percent of tpp 100 percent of soft cap and to do that, you've got to think outside the square and um, not only get your core business right, which is game day and memberships and corporate partnerships, but think about it um, outside the square on how you can build alternative revenue streams that are not tied to on-field performance. And that that's the basis of our sort of strategy of expanding into China. And, and that would have been my question. That's exactly what I wanted to yeah. talk about is that you are, in far, as far as I, you know, what has been seen, you are the only club that actually thought outside in terms of sponsorship and actual business development yeah. outside of Australia. Um, can you talk us through about how you, you know, went about negotiating into the Chinese market, obviously looking at China Southern, yeah. but also the games into Shanghai? How, how that actually came about, because I think that's a very exciting part of, of the model you bought. So after sort of four years, it all started with my grandkids who are, were expats in Hong Kong, um, watching them play Auskick in Hong Kong, which is the biggest, uh, second biggest Australian expat city in the world behind London, or all the Aussies there whinging that they got no exposure to AFL, they had rugby sevens up there, EPL. So we started doing business lunches up there. And our networks grew and we developed a strategy of approaching Chinese business people with business interests in Australia and saying, Australians don't trust you. You don't trust Australians because of the cultural divide. Um, if you want to build a bridge with the Australian community through football, Port Adelaide is China's club. And that's frankly, how it started. And one of the the big Chinese business people who came on board and fell in love with the game um, said, look, I'd love to take the uh, the game um, to Shanghai, his hometown, um, and play a game up there. And, and he underwrites the game every year. And as a result, uh, a big business network has been built around it. This year, Austrade had a Festival of Australia in the 10 days leading up to the game where they showcased Australian business and product and services. And we just got the debrief uh, this week on the numbers. They had 92 million visits to their WeChat site. 
uh, the Festival of Australia leading up to the game. We had, for example, on the Saturday morning, the day before the game, we did a, um, a breakfast for our supporters and locals with um, basically an interview panel discussion with two of our players and our nutritionists. We live-streamed it on our WeChat site and got 8.3 million streams um, for that event. The numbers are phenomenal. Um, and as a result, our 13% of Port Adelaide's revenue comes out of China at the moment. Um, and it's a profitable exercise for us and will continue to grow. So... You know, it's it's building a link through sport and building cultural and 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 trade links using sport sports diplomacy, if you like, and um, it's pretty exciting where it could lead us. It, it certainly is. So that sounds like listening to that thirty percent of, of rev coming from China. I assume, 13. 13. thirteen. Yeah, one three. Yeah. So I assume that over you know your coming three year period that you still want that to to increase. The, the other question that oh, comes yeah. with that is. The repatriation home and the sort of the drive back into Adelaide, um, particularly considering that's obviously an area you've been driving, you know, from a, from an own personal standpoint. Have you have you seen the investment come back, not just through the Port Adelaide Football Club, but also through those links that you just alluded to? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, but also not just to South, South Australia, but but nationally as well. Uh, the Victorian government um, this year became one of um, our biggest partners. Um, for the whole China strategy, they've they've been watching us the last two years and have had trade ministers up there. Phil Daladakis was uh, a big driver of it in the uh, the initial stages because they could understand the the trade links it would would build. And it's just you know if you put a football scarf on somebody, it doesn't matter whether you're Australian, whether you're Chinese, whether you're Filipino, whether you're American, whether you're a black white, uh, what sort of socioeconomic background you're from, you become one of a tribe uh, and all in it together. And that's what the business, both from Australia and China, has found, that it's been, it's been a great icebreaker. It's been a great way to, to build relationships and networks. Um, you now, Gil McLaughlin was up for the game the other weekend and we had the gala dinner the night before the game, 600 people. Um, he said that apart from the grand final day lunch of the AFLs, uh, he said this is the most powerful room of business people in AFL for the rest of the year. Um, we had boards of major multinationals all meeting around the game and it's it's really developing the way I wanted it to in terms of it's all about commercial. Um, AFL's not going to be a major sport in China. We're, and people that accuse us of that, um, um, that that's our intention. We're not stupid. Um, this, is, this is all about building trade and commercial links, um, both between the two countries and into Port Adelaide. It's as simple as that and um, because the way the AFL system is structured, it, there's always going to be a skew to the bigger more glamorous clubs if you're a small club like ours uh, to to break through that ceiling that financial ceiling um, you've got to think of it differently and uh, the dream is that that China becomes 
sort of uh, sets our club up for a generation financially. I think it's a it's a beautiful thing to be talking around the fact that you know you are clearly driving business from an Australian centric and Chinese centric point of view through through the mm. world of sport. It's um it is a, a truly fantastic thing to, to to hear and see. And and with that, David Kosh, thank you so much for joining for what it's worth. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's all for this week. If you're interested in finding out more about Investmart, where you'll find all of our previous episodes as well as Alan Collar's weekend briefing. Thoughts from Australia's best financial commentators, please head to investmart.com.au. Investmart, let's make wealth happen.